Thank you again for uh, your hospitality, your kindness. Thank you, Pastor Keith, for the privilege of being here at Boiling Springs once again. We've enjoyed every moment, as we always do. Thank you for taking care of us so well. And uh, thank you for your giving towards our ministry. We appreciate that so very much. And uh, we just uh, will continue to pray for you and to keep you in our prayers as we go back to South Africa. In a few weeks' time, be assured that uh, you have some friends over there who will be constantly remembering you before the throne of grace in prayer. We have been greatly blessed by just being with you all. And we thank you for your love, for your generosity, and most of all, for your hunger for the word of the Lord, for that soul thirst that we detect deep within your hearts to know Christ better, to know the fullness of God and the unfolding of his plan in your lives. And so may you go from strength to strength. In these days, we've been speaking about spiritual renewal. Sunday morning, we spoke about the vital signs of spiritual health. Sunday evening, the visible signs of spiritual health. Monday evening, we spoke about the key to spiritual health in terms of living out the Lord's Prayer. And then we spoke about the journey into the fullness of God or spiritual health as we looked at the story of Elijah and Elisha last evening. And this evening, we're going to ask the Lord to speak to us as we talk about the goal of spiritual health. The goal of spiritual health, in case you want to go to sleep after this little announcement, the goal of spiritual health is that Jesus might be all and in all. Let's bow together in prayer. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we rejoice to be once again together in your presence. We're never outside of your presence, but these moments where we are together in agreement, in the spirit of worship and waiting upon you, there is something so special when the Holy Spirit comes among us as a gathering of your people and opens our eyes so that we may see Jesus and know him better. And this evening, our Father, we feel just like those Greeks who came to Philip and Andrew so long ago and said, Sirs, we want to see Jesus. And that's our heart cry this evening. And so won't you, as it were, please hide me behind the cross so that the Christ of the cross and of the empty tomb may become everything to us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that in the strong name of Jesus, we can ask for spiritual awakening and renewal and for a heaven-sent revival that will not only restore your people here in the Boiling Springs Baptist Church, but in all the congregations of your people here in this entire county, in the state, through these United States. Would you do a brand new work in these days, O oh God, of spiritual renewal that will spread like a heaven-sent fire through the nation and from the nation around the world. Lord, there are those of us like myself who for decades 
have never ceased to praise you for the commitment, the example, the generosity of your people in the United States, the way in which they have sent and supported mission through the decades. And that has been such an encouragement to those of us in Africa and other parts of the world. And we want to ask that as the psalmist prayed, will you not revive us again in the midst of the years, that your people may rejoice in you, that we may hear again the sounding of your voice and that your glory may fill the land. And so now speak to us, we pray, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus. May the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And all God's people agreed with this prayer and said, Amen. Amen. Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I'm going to read some verses. I'm not sure if we have these on the screen. No, I don't think so, so I won't be leading you astray this evening. Every now and again I find I'm departing from what I gave to the technicians, and that can cause some consternation back there. Mark chapter 8, at the end of chapter 8, uh, Jesus is midway in his ministry, and he has taken his disciples northward to the picturesque locality of Caesarea Philippi. And there where there are a multitudes of idols and statues and the gods of the people, Jesus has asked his disciples the question, who do you say that I am? And they have given various answers that people have been giving to that very question. And Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered that this came by revelation of God, not naturally, to Simon Peter, and that upon this confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord, God will build his church. And that story is still going on, and you and I are part of it this evening. And it's from that point, as we pick up in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus began to talk about the cross and the empty tomb. Verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death 
before they see the Son, the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Just so far, and may God bless his word to us as this evening we consider the goal of spiritual health. Would you like to see Jesus as he really is? Not just as man, truly man, but also as truly God. As Peter, James, and John saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, let me say immediately, you and I would not be able to stand the sight if we saw Jesus as he really is. Matthew says he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Mark says, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. John describes him when he sees Jesus in his glory for the second time on the island of Patmos, where he'd been exiled because of his faithful witness to Christ as an old man in his 90s. He says of Jesus when he saw him in the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have at the end of our Bible, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Saul of Tarsus, arch persecutor of the Church of Jesus Christ, had the same experience on the Damascus Road, you remember. A light brighter than the noonday sun shone into his eyes. He fell to the ground and was blinded, literally, as he encountered 
Jesus as he really is. And three days later, Ananias, a simple disciple, is given the orders by the Lord to seek out Saul of Tarsus and to pray for him that he might be healed of his blindness and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd like us this evening to focus our attention on the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the most remarkable incidents in the earthly life of the Lord Jesus. And yet, I find that very few Christians have actually come to grips with what is going on here. Have you come to grips with it? We're going to break it down into its three very obvious elements. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we see three very privileged disciples, Peter, James, and John. And then we see two very famous, distinguished Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah. And thirdly, and most importantly, we see one preeminent Lord Jesus. Let's look at them in turn and see what we can learn tonight. First of all, we see on the Mount of Transfiguration three very privileged disciples, Peter, James, and John. You'll remember from your knowledge of the Gospels that after a night of prayer, Jesus chose 12 disciples. Luke tells us that after Jesus' ascension, there were about 120 disciples waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, when the Hebrew festival of Pentecost was beginning to be fulfilled. We know that of the 12 that Jesus originally chose, there were three that became a kind of inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter, the stormy one, James and John, the sons of thunder. Take a look at them for a while. Peter, the impetuous one. James, who, like James, the brother of Jesus, who became a practical, sensible person and a leader in the church, although he only came to faith in Jesus after the resurrection. But this James the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. He, you remember, was executed by King Herod. But from what we know of him, he was a faithful, steady, sensible person. What we know of Peter, he was always kind of putting his foot in it. And what we know of John, he was always loving and compassionate. Well, not really. Luke's account there follows the story of James and John wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy the unwelcoming Samaritans. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Peter drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest in Jerusalem. Later in the high priest's courtyard, we watch Peter denying his Lord with oaths and cursing. Peter, James, and John. Three different characters 
riddled with faults and weaknesses just like you and just like me. Three different characters that Jesus loved with all his heart. And if you forget everything else I say tonight, will you remember this? That Jesus loves you with the same measure of love that he loved Peter and James and John. He could not love you more tonight than he loves you right now. And his love for you will never, ever change to the end of your days. And Jesus takes these three, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain just as they are, and he allows them this indescribable privilege of seeing his divine glory, this super supernatural metamorphosis that no one else was privy to until they reached heaven. The other disciples saw his miracles. The other disciples heard his teaching. The other disciples watched him in public and in private, but they never saw him transfigured before their eyes. They had discerned his character. They had declared that he was God's anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, along with Peter at Caesarea Philippi. But they had never seen his glory as it is now displayed to Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. Up to this point, Jesus' deity has been covered by his humanity. But now on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's as though now his humanity becomes iridescent with his deity. His clothes become dazzling white, white as the light, Matthew says. His face shone like the sun. Luke points out that it happened while he was praying. The appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And these three disciples were understandably dumbfounded, astonished, flabbergasted, fearful. My brother, my sister, you and I would have been just the same if we had been there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're giving this amazing, amazing picture of Jesus who is truly man and truly God. And it makes an unforgettable impression on them. Peter writes in his second letter these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him 
on the sacred mountain. And likewise, John the Apostle never forgot that revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. John, as you know, writes his gospel perhaps about 30 years after the synoptic writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke have recorded their gospel accounts. And uh, Greek Gnosticism is beginning to influence people's thinking, and so John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Logos. And speaking about Jesus as the living, creating, life-giving Word of God, he says, The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld His doxa, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John could never forget, like Peter, the manifestation of the deity of Jesus Christ, revealing the very glory of God. And so these three are given an advanced picture of the Lord's future coming and His kingdom. In Matthew's gospel chronology, Jesus had just said, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And it's so Jesus is giving them a little preview of the coming kingdom of God as he is transfigured before them. The British commentator Sidlow Baxter describes it, and I quote, There before them was our Lord, suddenly appearing in a glorified body. High on the mountain summit, there were the three disciples, representing our Lord's people, taken up to meet him. And there were Moses and Elijah representing the saved of Israel. What an interesting comment. The three disciples were seeing our Lord as we shall see him one day, beloved, in his resplendent glory. Only we shall see him with a cloud of angels and the saints of all ages. Hallelujah. John wrote 30 years later when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John saw him as he is, and he never, ever forgot it. John had already seen him as he is, and he could never forget it. What a privilege it, it was for Peter, James, and John on that holy mountain. And what a prospect, beloved, we have too as his disciples. This is our hope. This is the end goal of all spiritual health. Amen. That we shall see him as he is, and when we see him, we shall be like him, and we shall reign with him forever and forever. Three very privileged disciples. And one day we too will see him, the king in all his beauty. But hang on, there's more. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, two very prominent Old Testament characters. Now isn't this interesting? In Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6, 
Scripture calls our attention to the fact that Moses died and was buried by none other than God himself. Would you like to God to bury you when you die? That's what happened to Moses. It says there in Deuteronomy that, that actually God took his funeral. Elijah, on the other hand, as we saw last night, was not buried at all. He escaped the grave. He was caught up into heaven in front of his protege, Elisha. It's almost as though Moses, buried of the Lord, typifies those saints who will sleep in Jesus until his coming opens the graves. And Elijah prefigures the saints living on earth who will be caught up, raptured, translated to meet the Lord in the air. For both Moses and Elijah had a most unusual entry into the presence of the Lord. The coming kingdom and the translation of the saints of God is glimpsed in advanced miniature on that glory-lit mountain of transfiguration. In fact, the more one thinks about the appearance of those two Old Testament characters, the more remarkable it all becomes. Peter, James, and John must have been staggered and astonished, to say the least. From their boyhood, they had heard about Moses and Elijah. From their boyhood, as Hebrew children, they had learned about these two prominent Old Testament characters, these two spectacular figures of their nation's history, Moses, the lawgiver and the leader of God's people, Elijah, the dramatic prophet and reformer, defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Moses, who'd lived 1,400 years before Peter, James, and John. Elijah, who'd lived 900 years before Peter, James, and John. And here they are, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets that all testify to Jesus, who fulfills them all. And here they are, talking with him, on the Mount of Transfiguration. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness, says the Apostle Paul, to everyone who believes. And Peter says in Acts 10.43, to him Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name whoever believes in him receives the remission of sins. And notice what they're talking about on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're talking about Jesus' decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The original Greek word in the New Testament for decease is literally exodus, and it is significantly linked with the word accomplish. In other words, Jesus wasn't simply going to die he was going to accomplish an exodus through his death on the cross. That's what they were talking about. Do you see where this is going? 
Moses led an exodus from Egypt when the children of Israel were redeemed by their Passover lamb. Elijah led an exodus out of apostasy in the experience of the nation of Israel that was decadent at the time. But Jesus was going to accomplish the greatest exodus of all through his death on the cross. He was going to lead an exodus. He was going to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven through his decease, through his exodus. He would accomplish redemption from the slave market of sin and self-centeredness and Satan and hell. And that's what they were talking about on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was that that Moses and Elijah had borne testimony to. And now, after all these centuries, they are standing with the truly human, truly divine Son of God. And they're talking about his exodus, which is going to be the exodus of all exoduses. He will redeem a lost humanity who will believe in him through his death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection. Now there's more you mustn't miss. Look at this. The presence of Moses and Elijah on that summit bears undeniable evidence of life beyond the grave. Moses and Elijah are standing there alive and well. It also bears witness to the continuity of human personality beyond the grave. There is reciprocal recognition. Did you notice that? There is no doubt in anybody's mind up there on the mountain in terms of who's who. There's not only Peter and James and John, but there is reciprocal recognition that there is Moses and there is Elijah. Beloved, that means that heaven will be the wonderful place where we know each other, where we recognize each other, where we will commune with each other. The only difference is that all your blemishes and faults will be gone. And so will mine. In fact, Elaine will only just recognize me in heaven. I'll be so much better then. That was her saying amen and hallelujah. But isn't it interesting? Moses didn't say a word about himself in the presence of God on Mount Sinai. Elijah didn't say a word about himself in the presence of God on Mount Carmel. But now both Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration and all they're talking about is Mount Calvary. 
the fact that Jesus had come to give his life for you and you and you and you and you and me. And that he would accomplish through his decease, through his exodus, the redemption from the slavery of sin and death and hell of every single believer who would put their trust in the Christ of Calvary. Hallelujah. The law and the prophets are all about Jesus. They're all fulfilled in Him. And now the voice from the cloud is all about Him. And so we come to our third point. The voice from the cloud says, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Three very privileged disciples, Peter, James, and John, two very prominent Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah. But all of the focus now is on the one totally preeminent Lord. Look at it again in Matthew's Gospel as we read the transfiguration story. Jesus was transfigured before them his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said, It's good for us to be here, Lord. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the cloud lifted, they saw no one save Jesus only. That right there, beloved, is the goal of all spiritual health. Where we get to that point in our relationship with Jesus, that he is all and in all the preeminent one. Center stage in the narrative is the supremacy, the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the blinding cloud of glory is lifted, the disciples see no man save Jesus only. Despite Peter's plea to make three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, these Old Testament giants representing all the law and the prophets that point to Jesus, are removed from the scene, literally, so that Christ and Christ alone has all the preeminence. The supremacy of Jesus, the key to spiritual health, to revival, is seen in at least three ways here as teacher, as savior, and as son. First, he is the preeminent teacher. Listen carefully. The voice from the cloud does not say, hear Moses or hear Elijah. They are superseded by the one they pointed to, Jesus. The voice is very clear. God the Father says from heaven, hear him, listen to him. 
He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No longer are the Old Testament law and prophets the final court of appeal. Jesus himself is now the final court of appeal. Nothing he says contradicts the law or the prophets. He fulfills them all in perfect detail. But his kingly, I say unto you, his kingly, verily, verily, I say unto you, his kingly, truly, truly, I say unto you, is the signature of irrefutable finality. Christ and Christ alone is the embodiment of the truth. Hear him. Listen to him. There's nothing wrong with searching the theologians or whoever, but in the final analysis, Jesus Christ alone is the embodiment of the truth and the Bible from beginning to end is the truth as it is in Jesus. And what God the Father is saying in the iridescent beauty and glory of his divine human Son on the Mount of Transfiguration is hear him, listen to him. He is the supreme teacher, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not anybody else not your televangelist or your Christian guru. Make sure you hear him. Amen? He and he alone, head of the church, Lord of all, the embodiment of truth. Listen to him. Jesus, preeminent as the teacher. All the law and the prophets must be interpreted in the light of Jesus' authoritative and final word. Second, he is preeminent as Savior. Moses and Elijah, each prefigured and personified an exodus which Jesus now accomplishes once and for all for whoever will come to the cross and believe in him. The law cannot save. The prophets cannot save. They only bear witness to the one who can save, and he is Jesus, and he saves through his death on the cross. Not all the blood of bulls and goats on a thousand Jewish altars slain could atone for my sins and for yours. And all the prophets likewise merely point to the suffering servant of Yahweh who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities by whose wounds alone we are made whole again. What an indictment on the Christian church that today Islam is advancing faster than Christianity. Don't blame the Muslims, my friend. We can only blame ourselves. For 1400 years, 
we have had the gospel that is the power of God leading to salvation to all who believe. And do you know what percentage of missionaries are working in the 1040 window? Do you know the percentage of missionaries that the Christian church has sent into Islamic countries? It's too pitiful. I'm too ashamed to mention it. Islam is the biggest satanic deception in the world today. It is perhaps the most powerful deception of all time. Do you know who's to blame? The Christian church. For us, Islam should stand for I sincerely love all Muslims. Love them so much that I'm willing to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus to them. I have a friend who was in Afghanistan for many years and speaking to a Muslim lady whom he had befriended and finally bringing her face to face with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. She said with tears in her eyes, for 1400 years, you Christians have known the truth. Why haven't you given it to us? through the centuries. We have a, mul a million Muslims on our doorstep in Cape Town. Do you know how that mostly started? The Christian estate owners didn't want their laborers in the vineyard to worship in the same church that they worshipped. So they imported imams to teach their laborers Islam. And now we are reaping what has been sown. Friends, I, like every Muslim, need more than a prophet. And I certainly don't need the false prophet Muhammad. What I, like every Muslim, need is a savior. One who can forgive my sins. One who can cleanse and change my heart. One who can restore my broken relationship with God. One who can lead me in a mighty exodus through his death and resurrection from earth to glory. And his name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He is preeminent as teacher. He is preeminent as Savior. And finally, he is preeminent as Son. This is my Son, whom I love, said God the Father about his son Jesus.
on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my son. Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John were beloved of God. But Jesus is his eternal son. And the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might again become the sons of God. And we have that good news. And what are we doing with it? What are you doing with it? When you're calling missionaries back to the United States. What are you doing with this good news? What are you doing with it? Let us pray. God have mercy upon me, the sinner. Please forgive me, Lord that having given me a vision of the transfigured Jesus who came to lead this gigantic exodus of a multitude of people out of darkness into marvelous light, out of slavery, into the freedom and fullness of the sons of God. That we have failed to take this gospel that is the power of God leading to salvation, the good news of the exodus of Jesus, what his decease has accomplished through his death on the cross, and sometimes we don't even have the courage to tell our unsaved neighbor how to get to heaven. I'm not sure if God has spoken to your heart tonight. I know he just keeps speaking to mine and that I will be accountable one day as I stand before him for the way in which I've stewarded my time, my talents, and my treasures. And so will you, my brother, my sister. As sure as I stand here tonight, you will stand before God one day. And you will have to give an account of your stewardship. Lord, help me, help us all to make the most of every opportunity and privilege that you give to us to reveal Christ, this preeminent, glorious Jesus to our world day by day. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.